Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. The choices you make in this life determine where you spend eternity. Now that should cause some of you to go, oh dear. Have you ever wondered what's beyond the grave? If only somebody could go there and come back and let us know, then we could decide how best to live our lives. Well, as it turns out, someone has, and we have all the information we need to make choices that affect our eternity. Tonight, Dr. Corbett will provoke your thinking. His message, if dead men could speak. Let's join him now. Let's pray. I want to ask God to speak to us and trust that whatever question you've got, whatever doubt you've got, whatever issue you've got through this time together now, God is going to speak to you. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us for questions, for doubts, for concerns, for issues, for problems, that in this time you would answer those in Jesus' name. Amen. We, as a culture, in many respects, are fascinated with what lies beyond the grave. And if dead men could speak, <laughs> what would they say? Well, I want to explore this. And I guess I want to explore the fact that we are quite fascinated by what is beyond the grave, what is beyond this life. And I've heard some people, I think, rather presumptuously kid themselves and say, I'm not afraid to die. And as a pastor, I've been with people who are in the final stages of life, and I'm sure there are many doctors and nurses here as well who have. And oftentimes those people in that moment have a very, very dramatic change of outlook. And I've seen people gripped with terror at the, at the thought that their next breath could be their last. We are fascinated by death and what lies beyond the grave. One of the questions we, we could ask is, do the dead live on? Do they live on beyond the grave? Well, there's, a, there's almost an entire industry that says, yes, they do. I've never actually physically seen one of these things before. It's a Ouija board. And this Ouija board is supposedly manipulated by the spirits of people who have passed away and they can move this thing around and communicate through, through this, this medium of, of the Ouija board. Communicating with the dead is actually condemned in the Bible, which... If it was not possible, it would just seem odd that the Bible would actually condemn it. In other words, it seems like there is some capacity for people to be able to somehow communicate with the dead. Now, there's various theories about how this happens. For example, for those of us that know that this seen realm is not the only realm there is. There is an unseen realm. For those of us that have that view, we could think, and perhaps rightly so, that it's not actually the dead communicating, it's evil spirits called demons who communicate through these sorts of things. Or it could just be a complete hoax, one or the other. It could be. But there is an industry, and even on our television screens at the moment, there's a series of meetings being advertised promoting a lady who is apparently uh, Australia's best clairvoyant. Our culture, the fact that these people can make a living out of doing this, means that people in our culture are pretty fascinated with, with this as an issue. 
So do the dead speak? This perhaps is one way people claim the dead speak. Another way, and I, I don't want to focus on this, but another way is this thing called channeling, where supposedly the spirit of the, the, the dead person, whom we may refer to as a ghost or whatever, uh, embodies the medium and speaks through them, channeling a dead person, that's called. Scripture seems to take this stuff pretty seriously because it, as I said, forbids it. I want to share a story about when this happened. We're going to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Uh, This is the story of a desperate king. And I want to pick up this story from verse 7. Now, this is the, the desperate king's name is Saul. And Saul, the, the Bible tells us, narrates the story, Saul was someone who was anointed by a prophet by the name of Samuel, who, by the way, we know that first, the last half of uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel was not written by Samuel, based on this chapter, because the chapter before he died. And these two books, called First and Second Samuel, are written in, in honour of him, but we're not exactly sure who, who put them together. But this Samuel was known as a, a not, before he was called a prophet, he was called a seer, S-E-E-R, someone who saw something. And he saw on uh, Saul, this young man Saul, potential. And God said, this is the one that I have chosen to be the king of Israel. And God said, the the reason I've selected him is because he is, here's the expression, little in his own eyes. So he was humble. He was a, a humble man and God chose him. Well, the prophet Samuel, one of the last things he said to this man, Saul, was that when he became king, he became very, very proud. And so Samuel the prophet went to him and said, When you were little in your own eyes, God anointed you to be king. But now you have rebelled. And he goes on and says in 1 Samuel 15, Rebellion is as the sin of, anyone know? Witchcraft. Which involves speaking to the dead. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. To obey is better than, anyone know Keith Green? To obey is better than sacrifice. That's taken out of 1 Samuel 15. So when he became proud, God withdrew from him. And now he's at a point when he's surrounded by the enemies of Israel and he doesn't know what to do. And every time up until now, he received prophetic word from Samuel who told him what to do. And he is desperate to know, how do I fight this unbeatable army? And he is in a panic. So we pick it up from verse 7 of 1 Samuel 28. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went and two men with him. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine 
for me. So that's why it's called uh, divination. That's trying to speak to the dead. Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know that uh, what Saul has done, King Saul, this guy in front of her, how he has cut off mediums and necromancers, necra means the dead, mancers, those who communicate with the dead, from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Verse 13, And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, small g, coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe and Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage verse 15 then Samuel said to Saul why have you disturbed me by bringing me up Saul answered I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. You might remember last week we spoke about how does God speak and we mentioned these two sources. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Verse 16 and Samuel said why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdoms out of your hand and given it to your neighbour, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Now, do the dead speak? Well, I think we can answer that question if we take the authority of scripture that the dead speak. In a moment, I want to introduce an, another piece of biblical evidence to suggest that the dead are aware and the dead do speak and the dead do live on beyond the grave. And here, I just think immediately of, of uh, Matthew 17, where in Matthew 17, Jesus is, is on, the, on the mountain praying and there before him appeared Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing all of the prophets. Just by the way, Moses couldn't enter the promised land because he had rebelled. And God in his grace allows Moses on the other side of the grave 
to not only enter the promised land, but to see the promise himself. God is gracious. God is forgiving. And God is gracious. But even there we have Jesus speaking with the dead. I'm going to make a a statement here that there are certain things that only God is allowed to do. And when Jesus, who was addressing this issue to the Sadducees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sadducees said there is no existence beyond the grave. No wonder they were sad, you see. Jesus said, doesn't the scripture say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? God is the God of the what? The living not the dead and yet they died so in Jesus mind these people weren't dead in the sense that they ceased to exist they were existing they were living beyond the grave let's come back to this interesting issue is there awareness on the part of the dead beyond the grave we've just seen a story in the bible that would suggest yeah Uh, of course if if you understand that before Jesus came There was a place of the dead. The place of the dead is variously called in Hebrew, Sheol, Abaddon. But it's the place of the dead. And and in this place, it it appears pretty clear, as we'll see in a moment, that there was something of of a passage to this place. And then in this place, before Christ, before Christ came on the cross, there was a place of the righteous dead called paradise in this place of the dead. And in this other place of the dead, it was not paradise. And people went to either this or this. And there's evidence that perhaps someone like Samuel had gone to this place known as paradise and through God's grace, he was able to communicate somehow to this woman and through this woman, but for his glory. Because you'll notice that this, if this is a demon, this is a pretty rebellious demon because he's redeclaring the word of God to Saul. That's why I think it probably was actually Samuel. So here's the interesting evidence. If, we were to, if, you, if you go, well, you know, I'm here today and you Christians, you, you go with the Bible. I don't really go with the Bible. I just think we die, we're six foot under and that's it, snuffed out. That's the end of the story. Here's the problem with that. The problem is presented to us today by... Dr. Gary Habermas, who is one of the most brilliant men on the planet. Dr. Gary Habermas has a large interest in neuropsychology. He's a philosopher specialising in this field. And what that means is Gary Habermas has interviewed hundreds who have had NDEs, near-death experiences. Now, there are people that had their heart rate stop and the monitor just goes flat line. But Dr. Gary Habermas has interviewed people, for example, a young boy was rushed into the emergency ward and was operated on and died in emergency surgery for some 12 minutes or so, which is not good. During that 12 minutes, there were no vitals. There was no brainwave activity. There was certainly no heart rate. There was no vitals at all. And then suddenly they kicked back in. And what was interesting was that this stunned the medical staff, and Gary Habermas documents this. And he went to to interview the people involved and asked one of the doctors, what makes this case so interesting? He said, well, I was the officiating surgeon 
And I went and saw the young boy as he, as he came back to consciousness, like when, when he like, got his vitals, but he was still unconscious, and then came back to consciousness. I was in the room when he, when he woke up. And as I began to talk to him, he began to talk to me about tennis shoes. And, and, and the surgeon said, I really didn't know what he was talking about. But then as he, he began to make sense, he said, whose tennis shoe, whose left size nine, named the colour, tennis shoe is it on the roof of this hospital and how did it get there? And the surgeon's going, oh my goodness, the drugs have done something, you know, like this kid's delirious. And he said, no, I'm curious. I saw it. He said, what do you mean you saw it? I saw you. He, began, he described the nurses who were in the operating theatre. He described other people in the operating theatre. He described the operating theatre. And then he said, and then I left my body. I went through each floor of the hospital and I hovered over the hospital and I was looking on the roof and I saw a size nine men's left tennis shoe on the roof of this hospital and I have been puzzled how on earth did it get there and the doctor thought oh well, that's, well I'm, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you're back and I'm you know. well the doctor couldn't get it out of his head I wonder I mean wouldn't you <laughs> I wonder so he made a trip up to the roof of the hospital and there was a men's left size nine tennis shoe on the roof of the hospital he grabbed that shoe he took a colleague into the room and hid the shoe and said, could you please tell my colleague what you were wondering about on the, what was on the roof of the, the, the hospital? And he described again in detail, a canvas, men's light-coloured left size 9 tennis shoe. And the surgeon's colleague's going, Where about, whereabouts was it on the roof? And he described it. And he thought, that's, that's detailed. And so then the surgeon who went up there and got it pulled it out and said, is this it? Yes, that's it. How did it get on the roof? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? They didn't actually ever find out how it got on the roof. But that's not the most profound thing about this story, is it? The most profound thing is, how the heck did he even know it was there? How did he describe the people who were in the operating theatre when he was unconscious? How did he describe going through the number of wards of that building... He, he was from out of town. He'd never been in that hospital. And Gary Habermas gives literally hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of stories. And that, even if you are a hardened sceptic, that has got to make you wonder, doesn't it? So how are we going to adjudicate this debate? Is there life beyond the grave? Does Gary Habermas's evidence, which is beyond the Bible, how does, does that account for anything? And I'm going to introduce down to the courtroom my expert witness. My expert witness is Jesus. Would you please turn your Bibles to the New Testament, Luke chapter 16. I said to you that in a moment I'm going to finish with my conclusion being, where will you be when you leave this planet? When you, when you have your last breath, your last heartbeat, your last brainwave of activity, where will you be? So let's have a look at what our expert has to say. We're reading from verse 19 of Luke chapter 16, where Jesus told the story. And the interesting thing is he, he doesn't give it as a parable. He gives it as a, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
Get that? Rich man, clothed in fine clothes, feasting sumptuously every day. Who would think that's the good life? That's a pretty good life, isn't it? And that's how we would measure success. And this man certainly measured this is the, the measure of success. I have everything I need. This man thought he had everything he needed. Hmm. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now we know he's not only poor, he's hungry and he's sick. Oh, this is not the good life. The poor man died and was carried. So I said to you that we know that after this life there is a passage then there is a destination. And this is one of the clues Jesus gives us of that. Because here's the passage described. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side, which is another expression also known as paradise. So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross who asked him for forgiveness, he said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. Now here where I said to you there's two compartments to this thing. And in Hades, that's a Greek word, which is often translated into English as hell. Being in torment. By the way, does it sound wicked to have enough in the bank to live on for the rest of your life, to wear nice clothes, to be in good health and to have three square meals a day. That doesn't sound wicked, does it? And it's not. In other words, the wickedness of the human condition is not whether someone's rich or healthy or whatever. It's in their heart. And in Hades, being in, note this word, torment. He lifted up his eyes. And there's a difference. So when it says he's in torment, I've had, I've had discussions with people who say, what kind of God is this that takes delight in tormenting people? No, it's not it's, it's not tormenting, it's he was in torment. He's made mistakes, now he's living with the consequences. He is in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It felt like a flame to him. It felt like he was in anguish and he's describing Lazarus as enjoying cool, fresh, clean, refreshing water. And he sees it and this adds, I guess, to his torment. Now Lazarus wasn't in paradise because he was poor. He wasn't there because he was sick in this life and now, you know, it's, that's not how it works. He was there because at some point he had cried out to God, help me, save me, I need you God, I'm in pain, I don't have enough to eat, I'm in agony, God help me. And You may never have prayed a prayer in your life but I can guarantee you if you pray that prayer and you may think God will never answer any of your prayers but I'm going to guarantee you with my life that he will answer that one. And Abraham said, child, remember that, in your, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
Now he is comforted here and you are in, note this second word, you are in what? Anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And I know that there are some here who perhaps have been poisoned by Roman Catholic teaching that there is a place called purgatory where you can go into this place of the dead and then come out of that place of the dead into another place of the dead. But the Bible says you may not be able to pass from one to the other. And the rich man, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now how he came to realize that the way to avoid this place of torment and anguish for eternity was to repent in this lifetime. He couldn't do it after this lifetime. It was too late. None may cross over, Jesus says. Once you have made your choice in this life, you live with that choice for eternity. No one can pay an indulgence to get you out of there. No person with a rosary bead can pray you out of there. No priest can absolve your sins beyond the grave. The choices you make in this life determine where you spend eternity. Now that should cause some of you to go, oh dear, if that's true, I've got to change. And if that's what you're thinking right now, hallelujah, you've just made my day. Let's just close right now because that's where I want you to move to. But I think it should do something else as well. The moment he realised that where he was about to spend not just a summer vacation, but the rest of eternity. Eternity. It's a long time. Eternity. The thought of eternity. F.W. Borum, he says in his book, Cliffs of Opal, all this reminds me of the restless, adventurous Quaker Stephen Grellett. In some ways, his record is without parallel. In days when travelling was by no means easy, he passed from country to country with as little concern as some men feel in passing from village to village. He learned language after language in order that he might preach the word in every hole and corner of the earth. He stood before emperors and kings, speaking to crowned heads with the naturalness and ease with which he addressed children at home. He found his way into prisons and workhouses, into slave camps and thieves' kitchens. He lost no opportunity of making an opportunity of preaching to all kinds and conditions of men the words of everlasting life. Here's one of the most remarkable evangelistic careers on record. But let me tell you his own story. One evening, he says, I was walking in the fields alone, my mind being under no kind of religious concern, nor in the least excited by anything I'd heard or thought of. Suddenly, explain it how you may, the solitudes of that vast American forest declined any longer to be dumb. 
They became vocal and wondrous speech. The wayward winds and the rustling leaves were all whispering and caroling and shouting and echoing the same wonderful word, eternity, eternity. And Stephen Grellett writes, that was the word he heard. It reached my very soul. My whole man shook. It brought me like Saul to the ground. The great depravity and sinfulness of my heart were set open before me. In desperation, he turned to his Bible. How can I set forth the fullness of heavenly joy that filled me? I saw that there was one that was able to save me. I beheld the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. I put my trust in the atoning blood. Floods of joyous tears gave vent to the gratitude of my heart. And all through one word, a word that reached my very soul, shook my whole man and brought me to the ground, that word, eternity. Eternity, the word falls upon the ear like the booming of an ocean on the crags along the coast. It rings and echoes and reverberates and resounds through all the intricate avenues and torturous corridors of the soul. The whole being trembles at its utterance as the abbey shudders to the organ's diacipan. Every faculty is awed into stillness. The soul is hushed into worship. The word that has all music of the spheres within it and if it does not hurry us, as it hurried Stephen Grellett to the cross, nothing will, says F.W. Borum. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting If Dead Men Could Speak from our online store. As we've heard tonight, there is someone who came back from the dead and he still speaks. Where would you spend eternity based on what Jesus taught about life beyond the grave? More from Dr. Corbett next week, A Morning with Isaac Walton. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.